Please be seated. And as aforementioned, please turn to 1015 and I will pray. Lord, bless this time in your word. Open my mouth to speak the truth of the gospel. That it may be what you want us to hear, not what I want to say. And that you open our hearts and minds to the truth of the good news of your Son. And will stir within us those feelings and joy that we need to serve you in the days ahead. Amen. Well, as you've heard, hopefully our mission uh, weekend is going to be very simple. It's a simple premise. We are going to tell real-life stories. Real-life stories that show for each of those people who tell it who Jesus is for them, what they know he's done for them, and how that has changed their lives. It's simple and it's straightforward. And it's simple and straightforward because it is really a central part of our faith. If we are Christians each day, we should be turning to God's Word, turning to Him in prayer and in worship, concentrating on who Jesus is, what He did for us, and how we're going to respond, how we should respond. Well, if we're going to do that in our Christian um, journey, well, um, this central part of the Gospel of Mark is really important. We've started in chapter 8, and through here to chapter 10, actually all those three elements are discussed and um, thought of. Who God is, who Jesus is, why he's come, and what our response should be. You probably remember just as we started the year, we moved, we joined Mark again in chapter 8. And in chapter 8, he's in Caesarea Philippi. They've arrived, and Jesus actually asks the disciples a straightforward question. Who do you think I am? And it's a key moment in the Gospel of Mark. It's the moment where Peter says, you are the Christ. I get it. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Holy One sent by God. Jesus isn't a nice, holy man with a great deal of wisdom. He isn't even a prophet. He is the Holy One of God, the Messiah. That's who Jesus is. And he's more than that. Do you notice then, um, after those events, he starts going off towards Jerusalem with his uh, disciples. What is one of the first things that happens? Well, Jesus is transfigured. Three of the disciples see it, including Peter. You see Jesus in some of his glory as the Son of God. There beside him is the prophet Elijah. The other side of him is Moses, the great leader. And just to make sure we haven't got it, then Jesus says, this is my son. Listen to him. Jesus 
is holy. He is the Son of God. He is God. The one who flung stars into space. The one who created us. And he has come down into creation for us. But what's he come to do? Well, the answers are there. That's what Jesus tells them immediately after Peter says, you are the Christ. Note um, Mark 8.31. Immediately that he's recognized as the Christ. What does Jesus do? Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That's stunning, isn't it? Here we have God himself, the Messiah, the King to come, who was expected to come and destroy the Romans, bring back salvation in a great, magnificent victory, and he's talking about going to the grave, rising again, but going through torture, pain, betrayal. Is that what he's coming for? Well, he certainly must be. After the transfiguration, he goes down, heals a boy of um, an evil spirit. Then, in chapter um, 9, verse... uh, Where is it? Uh, Where are we? Yes, verse 31 again. As he was teaching his disciples, he said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he, is killed, uh, when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. You think Jesus is making sure they know what he's going to do? It's the second time he said it. But now he even says it a third time in the sentences we've gone. You see, what Jesus is doing, immediately that he's recognized by Peter in um, chapter 8, he turns and he walks towards that very death. It's a pivotal point. He said, right, now I'm recognized as Christ, now I'm going to do what the Christ has to do. And I'm going to go to Jerusalem where they're waiting to kill me. And now he's on the borders of Jerusalem. And he says, verse 33 of chapter 10, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise. And he's walking straight towards it. That is what the Son of God is going to do for us. And it blows your mind, hopefully. He's he's not just given up everything in the world. It's not a riches to rags story here. He's God. He's got everything, power, might, justice, and he's not just giving it all to come down to serve us He's going to suffer injustice. He's going to suffer mocking from whatever he's created. And he's going to suffer and die for love of us. He's literally going to love us to death. 
But why is he going to do that? What's he going to achieve by doing that? The God who gave up everything for us. Well, he actually says, doesn't he? I think it's in verse 38. He turns to James and John. He says, For what I'm going to die, I'm going to give up my life as a ransom for the many. A ransom for all of us. You and me. See, a ransom is a straightforward idea, isn't it? Um, somebody is being ransomed. That somebody is, must be powerless. They can't get out of where they are. The only way they can escape is somebody else pays a ransom. They've got to pay a price to get this person out of where he is. And that's what Jesus prepared to do. And what it is is that we are in a place we can't get out of. We're sinful, we forget him, we praise him, and then two hours later we're selfish and we hurt somebody. We're sinful and we can't help it. We can't get out of our estrangement to God and our sin. So what does Jesus do? He pays the ransom. And that ransom is the price of sin, which is justice. Jesus is walking towards the justice that we deserve so that it falls on him and it doesn't fall on us. He dies, we live. You know, I want to be silent for about five minutes to let that percolate. (laughs) This is God. This isn't a God like Allah who just looks down and decides and is mighty and powerful. This is a God who loves us so much that they would go to his death horribly. While thinking of it, I was trying to think of an analogy. And uh, at one point, the 1917 film came up in my mind. It was uh, World War One based, I haven't seen it, I haven't had the guts yet to see it. But just imagine, let's let's go down this route. Uh, You're in the trenches. There's muck, bullets, death, destruction all around you. And you know that it's your duty, you can't avoid it, to go over the top. But you've got a captain there. Now that captain's amazing. You know, when he blows that whistle and he calls you up, he's going to be up there first with you. And you know what? He's going to battle for you. And he's going to take the bullets for you. And he's going to be there for you. If you're down, he'll carry you back. If you're in trouble, he'll be there beside you. You're going to follow him? Of course you are. You know he's there for you. You know he's going to suffer alongside with you. He's going to serve you. So you're going to go out there and you're going to serve him and you're going to stand by his side. That's amazing, isn't it? But that isn't a part of what God does. Let's move that scenario on. Just think, if you're in that trench and you look round and there isn't a captain there, there's a king. And the king has come down and he's willing to fight alongside and take the bullets for you. 
And not only is that killing going to do that, he's going to go up there first before you do. And as he turns around and blows the whistle and says that, he says, no, you stay down in this trench. Because there you're going to live. You're not able to get yourself out of this trouble. You go into this, you're going to die. Now I'm going to go up there, and I'm going to fight, and I'm going to defend you, and I'm going to take every bullet in my body, and I'm going to take every bomb on my chest, and I will die for you. And he goes out there, and through his death, he defeats the enemy. That's Jesus. He goes out to death. So you can stay in the trench and live and then step out of that trench into more life than you can imagine. And when you step out of that trench, you'll find him there, risen again, holding his hand out to pull you up. That's Jesus. That's Jesus on the cross. Winning the battle against sin and death for you. It is the most glorious moment in history. Torn apart, tortured, mocked, weak, Jesus Christ achieved the greatest and most glorious victory there has ever been in this world and ever will be. That is his glory. The glorious moment of Jesus Christ on earth was his death. Because he had victory over sin. And sin brought death. And now now that sin was vanquished, death was defeated. And Jesus Christ could rise again to new eternal life. And because he did, and we hold on to him, we can rise up to that same eternal life. What a glorious, wonderful, marvellous, never-ending, eternal victory. That is his glory. Of course, the disciples don't realise that. It hasn't happened yet. And certainly John and James, the sons of Zebedee, don't realise that, do they? They see the glory. They don't see the chance of suffering and servanthood that Jesus is about to do. So what do they do? They walk up and go beside him and say, actually, we want part of this glory. We want to be there with you in the glory. In fact, we want to be either side of you, enjoying every minute. And Jesus says, you just don't understand. In the meantime, our friends, the other um, disciples, haven't got it either. They're they're thinking, oh, we want that glory as well, and they're getting it before us, and they're indignant. And that's when Jesus says something powerful in the middle of this passage, doesn't he? He says, if you want power, if you want glory, you're going to have to serve. You are going to have to be like me. You are going to have to go through stuff. Are you ready to do that? In fact, the more you serve and the more you do, the more 
you can lead. It's completely the reverse, isn't it? If we want to have that glory, be with him in glory, we have to do what he did and give up on ourselves and give ourselves in service to others. And the more we do so, we might suffer, but we will have his glory with us. And Jesus is quite consistent about this. Just think about it. Back in verse, uh, chapter 8, when he's with the crowd after Jesus has been recognized as the Christ, what does he say to the crowd? If you want to follow me, you must take up your cross. You couldn't get a more stunning image of how we are to follow Jesus. Take up our cross. Put ourselves aside. Suffer and serve. That's what we're called to. And ahead of time as well, when he's in Jerusalem, when he's facing, uh, when he's within hours of meeting his destiny, when he's arrested at that Last Supper, what is the first thing he does? Can everybody remember? He washes the disciples' feet. As the lowliest servant, he washes their feet. This is Jesus. This is the one John the Baptist said, I am not even worthy to unbuckle um, his sandal with. And there he is on his knees, washing the feet, doing the most menial servant task. And what does he say to his followers? What does he say to us through the generations? You must do the same. Are you getting this? Who is Jesus? He's God Almighty. Come down on earth because he loves us so much. What did he do? He gave everything. Faced everything. Injustice, mockery, torture, death and more. More than we'll ever face. Just because he loved you so much and he wanted you to be free. And he wanted you to have the eternal life he wanted you to have. And what's our response? Our response is to follow. It's to serve. To give. Oh, that's so difficult, isn't it? That is so difficult. I find it difficult. You just can't keep it going, can you? You can't just do it. You're sinful. It's hard to follow Jesus at times. But you've got to do it if you know who Jesus is. It's interesting that this passage ends with the miracle that it does. Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is a physically blind man. But there's one thing we're sure about. Bartimaeus sees what's important. He sees spiritually who Jesus is. Jesus, son of David, you are the Messiah. You are God. He knows it. And he calls out to him, and he calls out to him, and he won't stop, because he knows how important that is. And what does he do? And what happens? Jesus reaches out to him and heals him. He saves him. 
And then what is what Bartimaeus does? Having realized that, having been healed, it's straightforward. Said in one sentence, Bartimaeus got up and followed him. And that's what we've got to do. We have to follow him. It involves servanthood. At times it may involve suffering. Even if it means that we have to put ourselves and our own selfish ideas and hopes aside. Well, that's just it. We just follow him. And as we do, we'll build up our real life story. We'll grow and be able to tell those real life stories to others. And as we do through the Holy Spirit, others will see who Jesus Christ is. Others will understand what he has done for them. And others will follow us into the next generations, proclaiming Jesus Christ, telling the world about him, and serving the world as best we can for him. Let's follow him, brothers and sisters. He gave everything for us. We need to give to him. Amen.